This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. There are moments in our life where we've all been prejudiced about something, where we've all misstepped in a conversation, we've said the wrong thing, we've meant the wrong thing, we've acted in the wrong way. And it's by understanding that and having a generosity in a way to the notion that we all have those problems to deal with internally, I think can be quite inspiring. This week, my guest is Kamal Ahmed, a senior leader at BBC News who was formerly editorial director and a member of the news group board. Kamal was also director of communications at the Equality and Human Rights Commission and describes some of his learnings from that role in our discussion. Immediately after this episode, I found myself taking down copious notes so that I'd remember to reflect on the pieces of actionable wisdom that Kamal shared with me. The two bits that stuck with me the most are that we need to take our listening one step further and iterate, and also that our thinking needs to evolve in the diversity and inclusion space to a point where we view it as an advantage to grasp instead of a problem to solve. Here's our conversation. Kamal Ahmed, thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm a, you know, a little nervous because you're the you're the news pro here, so this should be interesting. Thank you so much for inviting me, and no need for nerves. <laughs> Wonderful. So my first question is, you know, I've done a lot of reading of your CV and all your experience, but my mom says that our CVs and our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I'm wondering what's missing from yours that you think people do need to know about you. It's such an interesting question. I think. One thing that is missing that I've learned about um, over the years really is that I'm mixed race is a really important part of who I am. Um, I wrote a book on this um, a couple of years ago and my mother is from England mm-hmm. uh, and from a traditional English family uh, and all the qualities that that entails. And my father is from Omdurman in Sudan um, sadly dead now. He died um, just over a decade ago. Um, and I think that's a really important, those two things, my mother, English mother and my Sudanese father, are a vital part of who I am. And I think that understanding that, um, that black African heritage and that white English heritage is a really important part of me. Mm. I, I, I can only imagine and I feel like, you know, all the discussions we have around identity right now probably just bring that to the forefront even more. Um, I think it's always more interesting to sort of allow people to describe themselves. And I wonder if you could give my listeners sort of a brief description of what your day to day looks like. You know, you are the news guy is, is how, <laughs> I, how I'm going to say it. <laughs> well, Mungi, it's, it, it, it's a, it is relentless. Uh, mm-hmm. journalism. One of journalism's issues is its constant 24-hour uh, presence, really. And so in my life, that goes from first thing in the morning, checking the main headlines, what are our teams doing in the BBC? What are we really focusing on? Lots and lots of meetings and decisions around how we serving audiences with information that is useful, that is informing them about the world around them. And also trying to think strategically as well. So trying to almost slow yourself down because sometimes journalism can feel like a hamster wheel Mm -hmm. and you're just running, 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 running constantly to keep up with the news. But we know from audiences that they also want us to explain things and to step back and to have an understanding of what are the big themes I need to know about. And so part of our job from the day to day is also to do that work as well, to um, think about whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it is the huge debates around identity uh, and inclusion, whether it's climate change, sustainability. How can we slow ourselves down and think a bit more carefully around what we think the news is? And I think we'll come on to this later in our in our chat. but that's changing a lot and and, and certainly audiences and the public that we serve are changing in what they think of as the news. I'm 
pretty old <laughs> in my 50s. So, you know, when we started, it was sort of sit up straight, here's the news, listen to the news. And that's changed a lot for your generation. For younger people, particularly, they want to find out, they want to go on a journey, they want to be given news in very different ways. Uh, it's about knowledge, information, as much as, as it is about the headlines. And that's really challenging. And we think and talk a lot about that. And I just want to stick on something that you said about, you know, you, you wake up and it's it's constantly reading the news. And one thing I wonder is, you know, during COVID, there were moments and I guess we're still in COVID, but there are moments where I just was like this week, I can't do the news. I need a break. It's exhausting. You know, black men are being killed in the U.S. And so I'm I just need to step away for a little bit to give myself a reprieve. Can you even do that? That is such an important question and the mental welfare of our teams covering these types of stories um, that you've outlined um, is really important. And I think media organisations are getting smarter here, a long way okay. to go. But again, when I came into the media industry, there was no real notion of the mental welfare of, of colleagues, of, of you and the things you covered. Um, I think there's a lot more of that now. And also for our audiences, you're right, we do lots and lots of research, you know, talking to people both in the UK and around the world about what they want from the news. And sometimes they just want really straightforward solutions. Mm -hmm. They want something that gives them a break, as you suggest, from the relentless nature of what has been happening with COVID all around the world, particularly in, in this last year, of course. And we need to think carefully about that. So it's about caring about our own colleagues and offering them that, that just as you say, that, that chance to step out, to take time out, to not be on this constant um, uh, frenetic journey that many, mm. much journalism is. Um, and also thinking about our audiences and giving them different ways to, to engage with different stories. So a lot of COVID, of course, although incredible grief, um, incredible crisis, the great stories of uplift and communities coming together and helping each other. Um, we had a campaign across the UK called Making a Difference, which was all about groups of people coming together and helping each other. And that notion of humanity, I think sometimes news can, can be quite crisis driven and feel and as it should do often, to be about the things that we should be really concerned about and we should be tackling, and that's right. But also we need to remember that humanity is about the good things, about helping, about support, and about in the end sometimes leaving the news with a smile rather than here's a long list of things I have to worry about. Yeah. Well then, how did you get started in journalism and media? Quite, quite by chance, really. I, I was at university in the north of England. And to be honest, I was slightly scratching around for something to do. <laughs> we have in, in the UK, we have this thing called Freshers Week, which is when you start at university, you kind of join clubs and you're interested in drama or in sport or, you know, whatever it might be. I didn't really have anything. I was, and a friend of mine, uh, a guy called John Rigby, who's, I still know, works, still works, it works at the BBC with me. I was at university with him and uh, we were friends and we, we did politics together. And he said to me, oh, there's this sort of student newspaper thing. It's quite fun. Why don't you come down? And oh, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I quite like writing, you know, it's sort of <laughs> quite interesting. And I, I went down, it was in this dingy basement office, no windows. You could smoke in those days inside mm. and there were so there were kind of half drunk glasses of beer with cigarettes stubbed out and it kind of smelt a bit um it was it was pretty grim and i sort of went in but you know what Mungi? i caught the bug in that moment because the student newspaper was really important to the students about telling them what was going on informing them about you know interesting issues around the student body and I remember writing my first piece. I can't remember what it was on, but I, I can't remember. But my first piece and my first byline and thinking, wow, journalism is really important, whether it's that kind of small scale, 
you know the university community in Leeds as where I was at university which may be you know 20,000 people um, it was really important that they had information to be able to hold power to account to know where the best cinema was for films best place to eat um, controversies over their degrees or whatever it might be that mix of information and I really caught the bug and I'm and so I owe John Rigby a great debt because thanks John I know I, I, I'll I'll <laughs> when when we publish this i'll i'll i'll, I'll <laughs> at him on twitter but um yes. he he um he it was it was that idea that journalism is a vital part whether it's of that small community of a university for example or country's level or global level that journalism was a was a key kind of pillar of what made good society free fair reporting and i've been driven by that in a way ever since do you think if you hadn't caught the bug was there sort of a subject that you would have gone for that maybe you you know when you were younger say five years old that you're like i want to do this or <laughs> or was it really just like you you fell into it thanks to john i think when i was five years old i'm not sure i i probably just wanted to be i don't know a firefighter or something and <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember i remember when i was in i was a teenager for some reason i got very very interested in being an air traffic controller um i'm not quite sure why but i was fascinated in that for quite a while and maybe was it their big coats got... maybe or maybe or I, we lived <laughs> i grew up in west london we lived under the flight path of heathrow so ah. it's it pretty noisy so planes were a big part of my uh, <laughs> of my childhood and i thought maybe i i didn't think i could maybe be ambitious enough to want to be a pilot but i thought maybe air traffic control <laughs> was there the kind go. of a rung down i don't know but um um but at, at university, I think if I hadn't done journalism and, and, as you say, slightly fallen into it as a as a suddenly a, a realization as a vocation, it was really important, a really important part of good society. I think something similarly motivated might have been something around the law. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very. I my partner is a um, is a is a lawyer and um, uh, runs her own firm, and it's a human rights firm, um, and. Journalism is, is motivated by that notion of good society and what that might look like and helping people, you know, be good citizens or something close to that. And I think some elements of law are similar in terms of holding power to account, um, ensuring that that people can account for their actions um, and using the law to to defend people's rights. And some of those values are quite similar, uh, particularly in the human rights space. and I think we'll come on a bit later to some of the things I've done in my career. So I've been quite, they're quite close in values in terms of what, what you're trying to do. Um, it, and ultimately, of course, it's about fair opportunity for everyone, whatever your background. Yeah. This, so this next question may be a bit selfish since I, you know, interview people week to week, but I'm wondering what you would tell people makes for a good interview. Now, Mungi, you are a good interviewer. In in preparation for this, I have been listening on my morning Ooh. runs to your podcast. I am honoured. So, no, so the the art of a good interview is 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 knowing your environment, and that's what you do so well, because you can hear this is a conversation environment. You know, I'm not a government minister, and you're holding me to account. This is a conversation, and you get out of that hopefully, or well, you do successfully engaging. Um, uh, you know, information and, and things that people can think about. Mm -hmm. So the art of a podcast interview is very different from the art of maybe a big political interview where the person, the politician, may be trying to get across certain issues, but your role is to be on the side of the audience, to ask the politician the type of questions the audience want answered and to hold power to account. So interviews are different things in, 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 in different moments. And I think the art of a good interview is creating insight, but realizing that there are different formats for interviews. So if you think about one of the most famous interviewers in the United Kingdom, quite rightly and globally, is Andrew Neil, mm -hmm. and his forensic interviews of political leaders, but also of business leaders, are um, you know a sort of 
masterclass in the technique of interviewing in that style. But then they, if you think about you know, long form audio and the kind of work you're doing, that's a very different style and needs the style that you have, Monkey, to be frank, that kind of conversational style. So just always, when I'm thinking to myself, what type of interview is this? You've got to think about the person you're interviewing. Is it a member of the public? Are they dealing with grief? Or are they a celebrity, you know, talking about a, a movie? Or are they a politician you're holding to account? And you just think of the different techniques you would use for those different characters and then you hope at the end <laughs> you've got some insights to help the audience understand who you're interviewing and to make some kind of judgment on them well thank you for that i'm definitely going to keep that in mind yeah <laughs> I, I have a friend who um is in media in new york and and sh if i ever ask her for help with questions she's she sort of is always like well what's the purpose of the interview yeah and that's that, the first I think, question yeah that is that is always helpful um so i'm interested to hear what your thoughts on the press in the UK are and 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 what what should change about it you know obviously everyone has their opinions and you know there was the killing of Sarah Everard and so it's the way that people report on that but then also the Meghan and Harry interview can't believe this was all in the same week and and how people report on that and sort of take in that information so we are really fortunate that in the United Kingdom you know we have a you know a vibrant press and I've worked in in that in the press most of my career I've, I've only been at the BBC for um, seven years and mm -hmm. most of my career before that was in the print media so newspapers that now of course are digital and of course there is much that can be improved there are big issues around diversity and inclusion for all the media not not just yep. the press but the whole media sector and I think that comes from so many complicated things it's the it's the do we really understand what diversity and inclusion means? Um, uh, it means a different style of approach to who you hire, who you promote, what you consider talent to be. And have we modernized enough there? No, we haven't as a, as a full sector across broadcast and in print, and there needs to be change there, serious change. We 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 as an industry need to have a hard look at ourselves about what do we look like internally and how do we reflect the external world as as a as a as a sector um but the quality of journalism you know i am i'm proud to be a journalist in the united kingdom you know for the missteps and the mistakes that are made the uk press is an is an astonishing part of what makes Britain what it is and having been you know privileged to work in the press for, for many many years the amount of good it does does far outweigh those missteps although please you know those the problems are really serious mm -hmm. so as ever with these things it is complicated the problems are serious but there is a huge amount of good done by the print media and online media in, in the UK and when you're thinking about something like COVID the fact that so many people have used the media to navigate the year we've been through in the UK and also all around the world I think is is again a testimony to the quality of, of the UK media and, and it's not its diversity in the sense of the people at the top clearly there are big big challenges there uh, around not just um, ethnicity, but around all the protected characteristics, gender, sex, disability, and many others, sexual orientation. Um, but there is a diversity of voice in mm. terms of there are there are different uh, print um, organizations serving different audiences in different ways from The Sun is one of our huge tabloid newspapers to the Financial Times, you know, which is the obviously the global financial um, newspaper. And they do and there is that sort of differentiation in that sense, which so to some extent, there's diversity, although we know that there's a huge amount further to go.
Yeah. And I mean, my, my partner is a Brit and has lived outside of the UK for five years, but we are, you know, we're a BBC Guardian household. Um, right. <laughs> so I guess we're a little biased. Um, what, so you, and you sort of answered that in your last question, but what do you say to people who are worried about the direction of broadcasting in, in the UK, but also the world generally? Um, do you, you know, do you say, here are steps that we need to take and this is what you as consumers need to be sharing with us or or what do you say i wonder hold us to account i think is really important mm -hmm. i think that this is an issue that has been um, on the agenda for frankly you know monkey decades and the fact that we are still talking about it uh, shows that we haven't done enough so I think it's about holding broadcasters and the whole sector to account. What have you done to tackle the problem? So at the BBC, I was at BBC New York, very privileged to be involved in our diversity and inclusion commitments, um, working particularly with newsgroup board colleagues, but also our development director, a woman called Katie Lloyd. And we made them not just internal in terms of the correct promotion of talent, and to ensure that that wasn't being um, uh, confused by old fashioned views about what talent should look like or should what skills they should have. And Katie was driving a huge amount of work there with, with colleagues, but also making our diversity and inclusion commitments editorial. So what stories were we choosing and how were we listening to different audiences? So we set up listening sessions with audiences from different backgrounds. Now, for example, one I uh, did recently was with um, Black South Asian and other ethnic minority background people in Bristol, um, city um, in the UK. And we listened to them speak about the media, about the BBC, about what they saw as lack of representation. And then you respond editorially to what you've heard. So you cover some of the issues that they may raise. So it's about that audience research mm. um, and listening to your audience. So those those are the two things I, 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 I say to, to people who is, is hold us to account. Organizations need to have diversity and inclusion commitments. Diversity and inclusion is not a problem to be solved. It's an opportunity. You need to want diversity and inclusion because it's better for your organization and it's better for you to be able to serve all the audiences you have a duty to serve, particularly at BBC, because we are publicly funded, of course. Um, but then another group we listened to was um, a, a much more majority white group who came from a much less ethnically diverse background. This was in Norfolk. Um, mm -hmm. a county in, in England, uh, which is less ethnically diverse, but was about socioeconomic background, so economic background. And just as if we have issues around diversity, inclusion, around um, uh, ethnicity, around um, sexual orientation, sex, gender, disability, um, we also have issues around what we call geography, i.e. where do people come from? Yeah. Um, within the UK, uh, and also socioeconomic background class. That is as big an issue for media organisations as any of the other. Um, and so it's about listening to different groups in different ways and then responding to what you've heard and covering and changing your coverage. I think there's a big thing, Mung, isn't there? It's about diversity inclusion means changing. It, it's not enough. It's Renée Edo-Lodge who makes this point in her, you know, amazing book. Love why her. I'm no longer, yeah, why I I'm actually no have it next to you. me right now. Fabulous. I, I have it here as well. I have it here because I know we're going to come on to some favourite books in a bit. So I've got, I've got it right here next to me as well. Um, her, her point, her, one of her essential points amongst many is that it is not enough to just invite people, whether they're in the, these sense, this sense from a different um, uh uh, racial background to the top table that top table has to change it, mm -hmm. it, you have to embrace diversity not expect people to fit in with you but for you to fit in with them 
you need to pivot into a different way of thinking and acting. I think what I think when we talk about diversity for many, many years, it was about thinking, well, the power structure is right. We just need to invite different people to the to the power structure that we've built in our image. And a more sophisticated understanding of diversity and inclusion is actually the power structure is a bit broke is broken mm -hmm. and we need to change the power structure to be able to listen and react to different voices so not constantly telling people who some people consider to be different from what is the question to the top table and saying okay join our top table and behave exactly like we do <laughs> that is not diversity and inclusion and it's certainly not inclusive no, well, it's yeah, it's like hiring doesn't make diversity and inclusion. It's always taking the next step. Just because you've hired me does not then mean that I feel included in, exactly in this right. society. And also, thank you for saying listening to the different experiences differently. Because what I what I feel we do in the US is we take the experience of, you know, a black person who has maybe had their entire family affected by the police in some horrible way. And we then compare it to someone in the Midwest who lost a job due to COVID. And now they, then we equate those experiences. And I don't think we should equate trauma and experiences, um, but it, it, then it becomes a sort of both sides thing that it seems that the US loves to do. So I, I appreciate you saying that. And we mustn't get into a kind of victim Olympics that's the other thing, this notion that, you know, as you say, it's not about comparison, it's about listening and then reacting to where these things are systemic mm -hmm. and where these things are individual tra tragedies. And those are different things. And the, I think the approach is if you can have a listening, what I call listening and iteration culture, i.e. you listen and then you change how you behave because you have listened properly. And diversity for people at the top of organizations should should sometimes feel uncomfortable because Absolutely. You're, in a, you're in a zone that you don't really understand and you've got to be willing to put yourself there and be comfortable with that discomfort and to listen with humility to people who have had different experiences from yours. 100%. Well, I know that um, in November of last year, in 2020, that you were named as one of the UK's most influential people of African and Caribbean heritage through the 2021 edition of Powerlist. How did that feel? How do you feel? Do you feel very influential? <laughs> Are people listening to you more? Um, I'm very privileged in my role. Um, and I do have agency that comes with that. I, I recognize that. I was amazed to get that honor and um but it's it's a it's a do people listen it's a we're having a better conversation now okay. uh, than we have had in the past which is which is a good thing i i would have hoped that that journey we would be further along that journey this is a journey that i've been having uh, a discussion that i've been having all my career so in a way there is some disappointment there that I think for many people that they are, it's almost the first time they've engaged with it over, as you say, the events in America um, over the past year and for many years before that. I mean, of course, George Floyd for UK audiences was a, was a, was a sort of fulcrum moment in this debate in the mm -hmm. UK, but of course, America has been going through these issues through its history. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, <laughs> When when you are a person of color in a in a in a in a in an industry which is a majority white industry, you do have some agency, but also there are hurdles as well. Um, and so, I hope that I've been successful in in changing at all the places I've worked in changing approaches, trying to follow that listen, iterate, you know, be different because you've listened. Um, uh, approach and I've been very proud working with colleagues that we've done some good work at the BBC and it, it's a it's a it's a it's a process where there's a long long way to go but there have been improvements and to move a bit more personal you know I, I can't imagine 
the array of stories that you've had to produce and, and help report. And so I wonder if when there are really tough ones, if you've ever thought, Oof, maybe I need to take a step back and, and what has sort of made you continue on in your career? I think you do. I think that we as journalists probably don't take enough care around that. And I think that will change for the next generation, for the younger generation. We were, we, we, when I came into the industry in the early 1990s, there was very much a kind of get on with it culture. You, you yeah. were sort of tough and that was kind of part of who you were and, you know, you didn't let things affect you emotionally or you pretended that maybe they didn't affect you emotionally. And I remember when I was a very young journalist working in Scotland and we've just had the 25th anniversary of this event, there was a school massacre at a, a town in Scotland called Dunblane where a teacher and um, 16 um, children were murdered. Mm -hmm. And I covered that and I was in my 20s. And I remember driving back from that event and just bursting into tears in the car. And I had to, I had to pull up, I was on the motor, I had to pull up on the hard shoulder because I just started crying. Because I, I had been covering it for you know two or three days with colleagues at Scotland on Sunday, a newspaper I worked at. And I hope that wouldn't happen now. I hope that, not the tears obviously, but the, but I remember that um, I was um, uh, in, in the newsroom at the moment of the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand yeah. and the horror that, that was perpetrated there. And I, then the response of the organization was to warn people and to make sure that only people who needed to look at the images were looking that that was a controlled environment and that immediately we made it very very clear about the welfare support and that you didn't need to step into this space if you know this wasn't something that you could deal with or was part of what your direct job was at that moment and I think that mental that mental welfare change is better than when I was you know in my 20s and it's a it's a way the industry has has developed its thinking around that you've got to step back and step out now journalism can be an incredibly emotional and tough business yeah. but as long as you have the space at the end of that to decompress and to leave it to one side and to get support from your organization and here the BBC is brilliant support from your organization to allow you on that process to 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 um, help you understand what you've been through and the, the support around you and how to talk to your loved ones about it and that type of thing I think has changed very much for the better well I was gonna ask you you know about what responsibility you think journalists and the media have when it comes to discuss discussions around triggering topics and mental health and this was with you know, Meghan Markle speaking about feeling suicidal. But maybe the better question is, do you think if if journalism and journalists were sort of given more access to mental health care and taken care of in their personal lives through their employers, that then their responsibility to consumers would just naturally be a thing and and the reporting around mental health and triggering topics would change maybe for the better not that you know you, you still discuss the difficult things but maybe it's it's the duty of care is, feels a little higher i don't know if that makes sense it does make sense it's, and it's linked you're right um we are far more aware now mm. about mental health um what it means the duty of care uh, and that many people will go through episodes of where there are issues around their own mental health as part of their, you know, as part of their life. And our, our more sophisticated understanding of mental health, I think, is one of the great things that has happened over the last, probably the last decade, and how we report on it and how we judge it. Mm. And interestingly, I was speaking to a colleague at the BBC, a um, a black man who's a colleague there who's brilliant, smart, clever. I won't say his name because just in case he doesn't want me to sort of reveal his name, but 
he made an incredibly interesting point to me um, last year, which was we need to go on the same journey about how we report on issues around race as we've been on, on how we report around issues of mental health. Yes. And it's a similar journey. Mental health not seen as a negative, as a kind of problem to solve, but is seen as a part of who we are as a society, which needs to be, you know, um, um, reported on in a way that is not seeing it as constantly about victims and a problem. And I think if we could go on that same journey around race, as this colleague was saying to me, and he opened my eyes to that again, hopefully by listening to people differently, yeah. he really opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about race, where we often in the media industry, you know, demand proof of racism. Well, is, is racism a thing? Does it really exist? Well, actually, yes, the, the evidence is there, people. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, we need to go on a journey there about the way we consider how racism has, has affected so negatively so many people's life journeys and life opportunities. And it was really interesting to link that into how we have thought and changed the way we've thought about um, issues around, for example, mental health. And I think that's a really interesting, really interesting just thing to think about, mm -hmm. about how that, that change has happened. But you're right, if we can, if we can look after ourselves as organizations and as colleagues in our workplace and then think more carefully, you're right that we can then hopefully report better for our audiences yeah well you know your career has been impressive and i would love if you could share a bit about your work as the director of communications uh, for the equality and human rights commission yeah so that that was um it's often a criticism of journalists that we are very good oh. critics but we don't actually do things <laughs> and so <laughs> it's that notion of we're always theater critics and never actors on the stage. So I, I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm gonna push myself. Um, I'd had a wonderful time at The Observer. We had relaunched the newspaper. The Observer's the oldest Sunday newspaper um, in the world, um, I think. I think that's right, it's certainly in the UK. Um, we'd relaunched it, we'd had a, I'd had a wonderful, close on a decade at the newspaper. And I, I wanted to test myself to, to, to a bit more of that criticism, go and do something. And as I said a bit earlier, you know, equality, human rights are a big motivating factor for me in my, in my career. And it was a new organization that brought together approaches around what we now call diversity and inclusion, was then much more called equality, um, uh, brought together saying that if, if your approaches are right to how you treat um, women in the workplace, how you treat issues around sexual orientation, around race, around disability, around age, around gender. Um, if you approach that in a, in a holistic way, in the right way, promotion of talent, opportunity, working against your own biases, mm -hmm. then organizations would flourish, whether they're in the public sector, publicly funded organizations, or in the private sector. And that was really the mission of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And that's why I joined it under um, the chairman, Trevor Phillips, um, the chief executive, Nicola Brewer. We're on a journey to try and make those links and help businesses particularly, but also public sector organizations, evolve their thinking in the diversity and inclusion space. And that was really my, that was really where I started the whole notion of, it's not a problem to solve, it's an advantage to grasp. And I think I probably had quite a shift in my mind at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, working with incredibly smart lawyers, policymakers, strategy. I, I, my thinking developed quite a lot there about what diversity and inclusion actually meant. And, and this idea that it's an operating model. If you can get it right as an operating model, you will be more successful as an organization. So then what, what has been maybe a high of your career and, and a low? You know, I won't make you say who your favorite yeah. employer or colleague is. <laughs> I've had the, the one 
the one great fortune of being a journalist is if you are driven by things like this and, and I am is just being able to be to cover and to make sense of the huge sometimes huge global events like 9-11 but sometimes also small but vital moments in somebody's life where maybe they haven't been treated properly at a hospital or whatever it might be or they've had a great success Mm -hmm. you know um, at the Olympic Games or whatever it might be so that is woven into my career and I've been very very privileged to be to be part of those covering huge and significant stories the death of the of the Princess of Wales, Diana, um, 9-11, the Iraq war, financial crisis. I suppose highs is slightly the wrong word. These aren't highs, obviously, but these are moments in a journalistic career that are significant. Let let me put it like that. Mm. Lows, Mungi, are, (laughs) it's when you've not done your job well enough. And I've had lots of moments when I've not done my job well enough. Um, And those are the really down moments when you get home and you know you haven't performed whether that's on air you know i've obviously been on air in my career and i've been um, a frontline reporter for many many years but also in management as well when you know you haven't led a team well enough or you haven't been clear or something hasn't gone gone right so those those are the lows so the the highs are the the big moments Mm -hmm. and i suppose one of the things i'm proudest of is when we we reformulated with with a great team the observer newspaper um, and I'm very proud of that. And that is a fantastic paper, which um, still has many of the elements that uh, we, we we put together um, a decade ago, more well, more than that now, um, much more than that. Um, I'm very proud of, of, of being involved in that team. Um, but yeah, the low points are. I remember, I remember one one week we made it, we made a mistake on a front page story on the Observer, and I was travelling. I had to go on the train in the evening after I'd finished my my Saturday shift. Sunday it was a Sunday newspaper, so I finished my Saturday shift, and um, we'd made a mistake. And I remember taking that train journey for about two hours. I was going to meet some friends in the countryside, and um, just being so down. And I just sat on that train inside in sort of I didn't I was I was on my own, but I didn't listen to anything or read anything. I just sat staring out of the window thinking how could how should I have done that better I was I was head of news at the time so those are the low times it's when you haven't done your job well enough mm. who who are the people who have inspired you wow so many aren't there as I said I, I wrote a book about um sort of growing up as a as a mixed race kid in Britain in the 70s and 80s and then some of the issues around Britain and prejudice over time and when I started on my book, I didn't know that much, as maybe many children uh, have this sense about my mother. <laughs> I hadn't spoken to her enough about her life and what she had been through and the battles she had had through, you know, what's now known as the sort of almost the first wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s um, of political feminism in that sense. and her story is so inspirational to me now in a way that I didn't understand before I sat down with her and said mum what was your life like (laughs) so that that became inspirational my father as I say is is dead now sadly but he was an inspiration to me a a black man first generation immigrant in the to the UK in the 1960s making his way in in science and health in those decades was my goodness how tough must that have been lonely you could imagine lonely. yeah monkey that's the word that is the word i think people miss how lonely and tiring that must have been for him to keep himself together through i remember him saying to me um many many years later that he knew he would never get as far as he should given his skills he, he was operating in his second language at the very in ophthalmology and I remember him being sort of quite broken when he left um, he left the NHS I think always feeling disappointed that he had never he felt got as far as he should have done Mm. and I think you're right that loneliness I think does 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 sit with you and then of course you have so many inspiring people in your lives don't you your first news editor if you're a journalist your first news editor guy called Will Peakin at Scotland on Sunday amazing my first editor at my local paper a guy called 
Bill Heaney, <laughs> you know, inspirational. And then through your life, you know, a chief executive called Carolyn McCord is now the chief executive of ITV. She 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 was one of my mentors when she was chief executive of Guardian mm-hmm. Media Group, and she was a woman who, you know, affected a lot of my thinking. Um, this was in my thirties, um, so another inspiration Roger Alton the editor of the Observer newspaper another inspiration to me when I was there and still still an old very good friend of mine now and then of course your loved ones you know my goodness me I'm fortunate to be with you know a wonderful woman who is an inspiration to me and what she does and her values and the way she approaches life your broader family your broader loved ones there are so many aren't there it's interesting when you said who is your inspiration I think maybe 20 years ago you'd have thought of one person or you know one thing but i think as you get old and a bit gray like me um or a lot gray actually <laughs> if i'm honest with you um <laughs> i think people will be able to watch this won't they so i'll see quite how gray my hair is yes i think you realize it's a whole tapestry of people isn't it around you and in your life you know my closest friend guy called you know rory nickel he lives in cuba now you know he's an inspiring figure to me we've known each other for 30 years you know in our, and we've both been journalists for much of our careers He's an inspiring figure, you know. And this friendship, isn't it? Friendship, love, family. Yeah. Those are the inspiring people in your lives that I think you learn. I don't know how you've. I feel I've learned respect much more over the years. I think you become so much more respectful of of the people around you, because we all have ups and downs, don't we? You've asked me what are my highs and lows in my career. We've all had ups and downs. We've all had brutal moments when. We sat on that train in silence, knowing we've done something which doesn't reflect well on who we are as a professional person, or we all reflect on mistakes we've made in our personal lives. And I've made many, sadly. Um, we all reflect on that, and we all know that everyone carries that. And in a way, it's, it's kind of linked to our whole discussion, isn't it? There are moments in our life where we've all um, been prejudiced about something where we've all misstepped in a conversation, we've said the wrong thing, we've meant the wrong thing, we've acted in the wrong way. And it's by understanding that and having a generosity in a way to the notion that we all have those problems to deal with internally, I think can be quite inspiring. And people that I know who have been through that journey, I find inspiring as individuals. I've had so many conversations over the past couple of years with lots of white people and white colleagues which have been for the first time not demanding that I account for myself but them taking responsibility for where they are and the notion of what's my um, what's my role here and sometimes what's my culpability yeah and that's a much more interesting and positive conversation than demanding of me or so black south asian brown people of color demanding that we account for what's going on here we're tired of that mm-hmm. <laughs> let's have a different conversation <laughs> we are well before i ask my two closeout questions you know you you mentioned your book so i wonder if you could share the name of your book with our my listeners and also another book that you would recommend to them well it's very kind it's called the life and times of a very british man and it's published by bloomsbury so that's very kind of you and then I was thinking about about my book, and I, I went to the shelf, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna turn around. I, I got a, I got a couple out. I, I think the the book that most affected me um, is um, uh, it's quite a young writer, um, Ibram X Kendi from America, who you may yep. have heard of, who's wrote stamped um, stamped from the beginning. This book, when I when I read this book, it, it was such it opened up my eyes to the American story in a way that I hadn't really reflected on before. And it was a very important, almost a primer for my book in a way. I, it helped me understand much more the issues around race in particular. And of course, he's, he's, his recent book about anti-racism mm-hmm. is equally um, important. So he's, he's become one of those really influential authors for me um, and someone I would really recommend to, to all your listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have um, stamped from the beginning anti, the anti-racist one. Um, well, what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? Wow, that is a big question. Is that we don't, we, 
that we don't understand how to include everyone in our decision making and our and our progression that we we need to not be having these conversations mungi in another 20 years we need to really get this stuff and if we can get this stuff that can solve all the other things because our brain power is there our belief our generosity is within people but if we don't listen to all of it we won't we won't solve the other great existential problems of climate change mm. where is ai going to go what does big tech mean for the future what does geopolitics look like in 10 years time if we don't get that fundamental way of operating right listening iterating being generous who has the best ideas let's focus on those you can't solve those big issues and that's why diversity and inclusion is so important because it's a way of getting the best from everybody and therefore solving other problems i suppose my fear is although i'm an optimist <laughs> i i don't fear that we won't do it i i i hope i believe we will but i don't want to be sitting here in 20 years as an old old man <laughs> talking to you saying we still haven't got it so would you say that's your hope or you know, because that's I'm my hope as well. Then I can answer that nice and quickly. <laughs> my hope is we will get that right, and my belief is we will get that right. Well, yeah, you, it. You know, I always think of like all these great minds that we have sitting and explaining racism and diversity and inclusion to us. It's like, what are we missing out on that they could be working on? But we don't get those gifts because we have them focusing on teaching the world about racism. That, that's what I always wonder. Like, what are we missing out on? Because we haven't gotten there yet. It's the, it's, it's the listening, reflecting, changing. It, it's that notion of, it's not just enough to listen and go, aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, and nod. You have to then think, and so what, what does that mean for me? How do I need to change? How do I need to operate? Particularly the people at tops of organizations. This is particularly important. The people who hold the levers of power. What does it mean I need to do differently that is the key listen the whole the the old cliche you've got two ears and one mouth but people tend to use their mouth more than their ears absolutely use your ears more than your mouth and then think about what you've been told and then change your way of acting and that's how change will happen well Kamal Ahmed, I really enjoyed our conversation and I am very so much, thankful that you came on Everyday Ubuntu. It's so nice of you to um, have me on and your book is now on order. So I'm looking forward to reading it enormously. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.